0: You don't teach anyone anything ever. All you do is create for them the right context in which they can learn. So both parts of feedback, me telling you the truth about you, and then me telling you what you should do to do it better or different, both of them are fundamentally A, flawed, and B, deeply arrogant. We need to get feedback out of the lexicon because it basically says there's nothing in you. It's all me telling you how to be a better you. No part of that works. I mean, try being in a relationship like that. It it doesn't work in a relationship any (laughs) more than it works in school.
1: Welcome to How To Be Sad, the podcast about how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. My name's Helen Russell, I'm a journalist and author, and each episode I'm joined by a special guest sharing their own experiences of how to be sad well. Marcus Buckingham is a leading expert in the world of work. So I wanted to talk to him today at a time when workers are quitting their jobs at historic rates. With more of us realizing there's more to life than the four walls of an office. Many of us are searching for meaning and connection post pandemic. And so many of us are looking to reinvent our working life. We're not talking about beanbags and free smoothies or the good vibes only approach here. We are talking finding fulfillment and a way to bring our whole selves to work. So today we explore the connection between love and work, how school and work can stifle our emotions and idiosyncrasies, finding our red threads and why feedback is overrated controversial. We also talk about Marcus's personal journey from overcoming a debilitating stammer to public speaking as an introvert, the dangers of pathologizing, and how we are all a beautiful category of one. Marcus shares his own experiences of learning to sit with sadness, as well as the US college admissions scandal that he was a part of in the last year. So anyone who's followed that story, it'll be well worth a listen, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So I would love to begin by talking about the connection between work and happiness, bearing in mind your new fantastic book, Love and Work. Marcus, tell us all about it.
0: The place to begin is that loveless excellence in any job is an oxymoron. Any job, housekeeping, mining, manufacturing work, delivery driver work, all the way to other jobs that leadership, any job done well has love in it. And uh, unfortunately, no one teaches us how to find it. No one teaches us this. They tell us sort of cliches like find a job you love and you'll never have to work a day in your life again, which we have no data on that at all. But we do have data that says the most successful people in any job find love in what they do every day. And if you don't do that, you are a, you're a different human.
1: It's fascinating at a time when people are quitting their jobs at record levels. You wrote that schools and workplaces insisting on treating us the same are sources of oppression. And so now's the time to stop this, devise better schools, more intelligent workplaces. Does this go right back then? Are we just trained this way from a really early age, would you say?
0: Well, we start off with a fundamental attribution error. When we look at our kids, not as parents, but As schools and teachers, and there are some amazing teachers, don't get me wrong, but we assume that people are empty vessels and that the goal of teaching and school is information transfer and confirmation through testing. And that what we should be doing in school, whether it's geometry or math or science, whatever, is to teach every student all the required information that we need to give them on a particular subject, and that's standardised. And then in order to confirm that they have it, we give them standardized testing. And the best student is the one who's got the best scores on the standardized tests. And so right from the get-go, we are telling you from the get-go that you don't have anything unique inside you. There's nothing inherent in you, regardless of your gender or your race or your age or your religion, just your uniqueness. Your uniqueness isn't real. From the get-go, we say your uniqueness isn't real. Actually, it's worse than not real. It gets in the way. It's an impediment it's both not real and annoying to us. So we're gonna spend most of our time in school trying to just teach you stuff from the outside in, and then we'll test you on how much of it you've retained. And then in work, that whole thing continues. So we don't help you figure out who you are and what you can contribute at work. We actually say that work is defined by these external goals that you're supposed to have or external rules that you're supposed to follow or external competencies that you're supposed to possess. We will do performance appraisals that will rate you against the standardized list. And then your development and everyone should have an individual development plan, but your individual development plan is basically how closely can you match our model. Here in the United States, if you work for the federal government, the 3 million people who work for the federal government, if you don't uh, prove that you possess a certain list of predefined competencies which are basically some combination of skills and attributes, you can't get promoted by law. You can't get promoted to the next level in your career unless you've demonstrated a competency like strategic thinking or executive presence or growth orientation. So before anybody met you, they defined a list of attributes that you're supposed to possess or a list of skills you're supposed to possess. And then we, um, we rate you based upon how close you match the model. So from a very early age, we, we get something fundamental wrong that the most defining quality of a human is his or her idiosyncrasy and that the most uh, healthy way to be productive at work or in life is to build a really tight relationship with your own idiosyncrasy who are you what do you derive love from which activities do you lean into which ones do you shy away from which ones are so fun for you that you lean into them like a like an obsession and that that leads to practice which leads to all that stuff that you would want someone to have as they go through their career a really intelligent healthy relationship with themselves we actively in school and work we actively try to alienate you from that and that's not me being polemical, that's just an objective observation of how we do learning and growth and development in the
1: world. So to hop back into that, you mentioned idiosyncrasies. I hear a lot of men, especially aged 40 plus men, say a similar thing that these quirks and and these differences were, were squashed out at school and they weren't celebrated. Whereas I, you will know much more of the data than me, but I have read studies and I know sort of anecdotally that actually a lot of girls enjoy the school experience I certainly found it was the one place I could be myself at school it was it was safe but it was an opportunity to grow and you know I think many women are raised to be people pleasers and actually it suits us pretty well that that going through that system which may or may not be a good thing but I wonder is there any sort of gender difference in the in the studies you have on this
0: I'm afraid not none and there are global studies done over 25 years The, the if you ask people, do you have a chance to use your strengths at work every day? There's no difference at all between the generations or the genders. If you ask people, did you experience significant stress at school in the last week? And you asked 10 to 20 year old girls and 10 to 20 year old boys that question. There's no difference in gender at all. If you ask people at work, did you experience significant stress at work in the last week? No difference in gender at all. If you ask women and men, did you experience significant discrimination in school in the last week? No difference in gender. And the same is true in work with the same discrimination question. Now, if you're LGBTQ+, you're twice as likely to experience discrimination in school at work. If you are a minority, you're more than twice as likely to answer strongly agree to that question than if you are Caucasian so there are clearly differences of stress of strength usage and of discrimination but they don't slice by gender now that doesn't mean that men and women are treated the same i don't mean to uh, overclaim what that data show but it's interesting that that most of the biggest differences are within genders not between them
1: interesting and so what what is it that we can be doing differently
0: my daughter, who's 16 at the time, came to me during the pandemic and asked me what was the difference between a parallelogram and a rhombus. And I, at the time, was aware of two things. One, I had no idea what the difference was between a parallel. Marcus. Seriously. Um, I actually looked it up again, and I still don't really get the difference. But anyway, I, first of all, I didn't know the difference. Second, it's apparent that somebody a while ago some curriculum development team decided that geometry was so important to my daughter that she was going to get almost 10 years on geometry, 10 years on the rules and formula and everything on geometry. And that's fine because geometry, you know, God love geometry, but (laughs) all the things that regardless of her gender, I look at my daughter and I just want to have her have a life in which when she's 30 years old, she does get a chance to say, this is who I am. This is what I love people to rely on me for. This is what I love people to turn to me for. This is when I'm at my best. Not necessarily this is where I'm the best. I don't need her to be a braggart, but but this is where I'm at my best. This is what uh, I love to lean into. All those things that you want her to be able to articulate about herself. And the same for the people on her team, so that she would know how to ask questions about the people that or were on her team that she was joining, who she might not actually physically work in the same place with, but she would want to know how they think or how they learn or how they feel challenged and what they want her to lean into them for, all that stuff, which is really interesting, and obviously which every company would want to do. They give her nothing on that, zero. Absolute. There's no curriculum on that at all. So I think from a school standpoint, what companies need to be able to do is put pressure on schools to say, We actually need self mastery in our graduates. We need people to join a company and know quickly how to articulate what they bring and articulate how they can add value to a team. And they need to be able to do that ongoingly in flow of work. And at the moment, you guys are graduating people who have no idea about any of that, like none, because you haven't given any time to self mastery. So it begins with let's change some of the curriculum at school. Not all of it. We need to learn geometry. Of course we do. But all the way through our teenage years, you were saying you had a lovely time at school. That is Great. I mean, that is fab.
1: I do appreciate I'm in the minority, but yes.
0: Well, certainly over here. I don't know about in Denmark, but but here we've got a we've got a pandemic not of COVID. We've got a pandemic of of Adderall and Wellbutrin for depression and Xanax to take the edge off everything, and it's just an absolute, unbelievably horrible um, pharmacological pandemic because our kids go to school and they. They don't really have a language or a discipline or a rigor to figure out who am I and what can I bring and how can I use my life to educate me about uh, who who I am and what I bring. So to begin with, it's pressure from schools on schools saying we need self-mastery curricula. That's useful. It's easy to do. We should do it. We don't. For the individual, one of the places to start is, you know, I, I started the book this way, but we don't really appreciate how unbelievably massively unique each one of our brains are. We have 100 trillion synaptic connections in our brain by the time we're 19. And no one's synaptic connection network is the same as anyone else's. So what you love and what you're into, do you have brothers or sisters, Helen?
1: No, just me.
0: Just you. Okay. You have cousins? I do, yeah. Okay. People that you grew up closely with. Uh, Jung called this individuation, but individuation starts about nine or 10 years old. And at that age, you start realizing that you're a bit different than the people that even that you go to school every day with or that you grew up with. And if you have siblings, it's like you start realizing I'm different, even than my brother or my sister. And what no one does really is help us know why, because almost all of the narrative about how you came to be who you are is framed around things that you share with millions of other people, your gender. Your socioeconomic status, your religion, your nationality, which are all important. There's no question they're all your sexual orientation. They're all really important, but you, you share them with many millions of others. Which parts of you are just you? The only other answer to that question is often your biography. So people point to their parents. Well, I was raised this way. This was the trauma I had as a child. And all that is true. All those things happen to you. But what we know from extensive studies of identical twins raised apart is that your personality, Helen, is not a function of your parents at all. It's not a function of how they raised you at all. Only insofar as they gave you some genes and the clash of the chromosomes and the genes coming together created Helen. And inside of Helen is this unbelievably massive 100 trillion synaptic connection network in your brain. And it leads you To be a category of one, it leads you to love some things, loathe others, lean into some things, laugh at some things, be frustrated by that are completely different than your cousins or your closest friends at school. And what's lovely is that life is actually trying to show you clues to demystify yourself. And so the simplest thing you can do as an individual, the simplest, is just take a pad around with you for a week and draw a line down the middle of the pad. And anytime you see, the sign of an activity that you love. So there's three obvious signs. Before you do something, you find yourself looking forward to it for no good reason, (laughs) just naturally volunteering for it. Second, while you're doing it, time speeds up, what the positive psychologist Mike Cechsha called flow, but you could call it being in your element or time flying by, the steps falling away. And then the third thing, the third sign is after you've done something, you don't feel drained. You, You actually feel invigorated. You feel up. You, you're not, thank goodness that's over. You're like, wow, that was that was me, that was. So if you think about those three signs and you just take a, plat, a pattern with you for a week, anytime you see one of those three signs, you scribble down what you were doing, the actual thing you were doing, the specifics of what you were doing. And any time you see the inverse, you put it on the loathed it list. But, so you're procrastinating something or when you're doing it, time really drags on or whatever. Scribble it down in the load there. And we could tell people how to use the raw material of a regular week of their life to start just start to pinpoint what are the particular activities that for no good reason other than that you're you that you lean into that are energetic for you i call them red threads because your week is like a fabric of many thousands of different threads many thousands of different activities some of them lift you up some lift you down a little bit they're emotionally neutral you just sort of get through them but some of them are red some activities have have red thread qualities to them. They lift you up, they invigorate you. And they're so specific. It's not like, oh, I like helping people. No, it's, I like helping specific people under a specific set of circumstances for this reason on this subject. And it's like, oh. And if you just use a week of life, it can show you, it can start showing you what these red threads of yours are. Everyone else is colorblind to your red threads, which is why feedback is so pernicious and so useless for you because people are trying to tell you that you would be better if only you were more like them and had their red threads so no one can do this for you but but all the data we have show that if you want to find love in your work 20% red threads not 80 not 60 if you want to avoid burnout if you want to make a contribution if you want to move through life healthily find 20% of your job red threads you don't need a red quilt
1: that is fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Marcus. I, it sounds sort of radical, especially the idea, I guess, that that feedback is useless. How does that go down? I mean, you're a prolific speaker and you've written best-selling books, but I mean, feedback seems so much a part of all of our work lives these days. I, I do speaking and I do writing and I'm a journalist. And yes, I mean, it feels rather kind of reactionary to say, oh, no, no more feedback. Thanks.
0: Everyone's in love with feedback at the moment, and it's unfortunate because it's <laughs> when you push on it it's just there's two parts about it that are really problematic and I don't mean the uh, attention is humans like attention, so yes, if you wanted to destroy us, ignore us and probably this current fascination with feedback is a reaction to the fact that we used to get performance reviews once a year and we many of us were lonely, and so if you if you equate feedback with just attention, then gosh, yes, it seems like a good thing because none of us want to be ignored. But feedback, as I'm I'm using it, is somebody telling you what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. And second, telling you what you should do differently. That's feedback. This is what you're doing right and wrong. And this is what you should do to do it better
1: social media
0: well well, yes but also the feedback movement i mean Uh there's a there's an app coming to you near to at work these days because of course We can build apps that do give us constant on. I mean, if you go work for Bridgewater Associates here in the US, which is the largest headphones in the US, every single person in the company walks around with a little app on their phone and they rate you and grade you on every single interaction that they have with you, regardless of your level. So every meeting, every conversation, every email, you are rated, graded and rated on every single interaction because... Um, well, supposedly, because uh, more feedback, the better.
1: But that's a Black Mirror episode.
0: It's exactly <laughs> a Black Mirror episode. Extraordinary. But if you even look at, you know, really smart, good people like Renee Brown or over here, Glennon Doyle, I mean, everyone's, a, um, we should learn how to give and receive critical feedback. No, 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 we shouldn't. Because the first two things about feedback, both of which are wrong, are firstly, that I have the truth about you that I can tell you what you're doing right and wrong. I can't do that. Human beings are naturally idiosyncratic in the way that they make sense of the world. I can't put that aside. There's been 40 years of research on whether or not we can make someone so objective in the way that they view someone else that they can put their idiosyncrasy aside and be an accurate rater of you on any quality, like empathy or strategic thinking or whatever it is. And we can't. Humans can't. It's called the idiosyncratic rater effect. It's very strong. And it basically means that when I rate you, Helen, on anything, even if I've got a really sophisticated 360 degree survey I'm rating you on, then the the assumption is that I'm using this rating system to see you, like through a window. But if that were true, then when I rate someone else, my scores should change because I'm now looking through a different window at someone else. And if I look at someone else, the scores should change again because now I'm looking at a different person. But what we see is the scores don't change. My ratings of people move with me, no matter who I'm rating. And this isn't a function of unconscious rate of bias in terms of gender or race or age. It's almost like I can't see you. It's not a window. It's a mirror. Every rating system is just me bouncing me back at me, which means it's systematically flawed data, which means when you add systematically flawed data to more flawed data, which we do in 360 surveys and so on, you don't get good data. You just get lots of bad data. You might have blind spots, Helen, but I am not the one to tell you what they are ever. And anything that says, no, no, I've got the truth about you, Helen. Anything like that is not only arrogant on my part, it's also methodologically flawed. I can't do that. But the only thing I can share with you, Helen, is my reaction. So I could share with you how I feel if you come to me with a piece of writing and I say to you, Helen, I didn't understand the third paragraph. I just I got lost. Y- you can't tell me I'm wrong. You could say why. But if you, you can't say to me, Mark, you weren't lost, because I'm going to go, no, Helen, I was lost. That's my reaction. A reaction is a much more humble thing to offer you because it's not me telling you who you are. It's just me saying, hey, when you wrote that paragraph, I didn't get it. Now, that's not feedback, that's just my reaction. I'm not telling you who you are. The second part of feedback that's wrong is me then telling you what you need to do in order to do it better. That only works if you've got a fact wrong. If you've got a fact wrong, then I can tell you you need to correct that fact. But me telling you what to do differently to be better is basically me saying to you, you would be better at this task, Helen, if only you were more like me. And we know learning doesn't work that way. Learning, All learning, how learning actually works in your brain, is insight. It's synapses and synaptic connections happening in your brain. It's not me (laughs) pouring knowledge into you. So all great coaches know this. You don't teach anyone anything ever. All you do is create for them the right context in which they can learn. So both parts of feedback, me telling you the truth about you, and then me telling you what you should do to do it better or different, both of them are fundamentally, A, flawed, and B, deeply arrogant. So we we need to get feedback out of the lexicon because it basically says there's nothing in you it's all me telling you how to be a better you and uh, no part of that works i mean try being in a relationship like that it it doesn't work in a relationship any more than it works in school
1: interesting yeah i guess it's like the john Gottman that you offer five pieces of positive uh yeah feedback for every one criticism or not feedback rather but i can't decide whether that's incredibly liberating or sort of lonely and terrifying. In in my last book, How to Be Sad, I, I look at the pathologizing of sadness and how m- so many of us are getting diagnoses when actually it might just be our lived experience or what happened to us or um or, or I'm wondering now because of who we are, because we are this category of one. I wonder if there is a, is sort of a correlation between between that and and your findings and your work around who we are and what we love.
0: Yes, what you just said is such a beautiful thing because, A, we do pathologize ourselves anyway. We take something normal like sadness and we turn it into a trauma and we traumatize you. And people say there's a lot of toxic positivity at the moment, but it's so funny. People are trying to sort of twist sadness around as though it's positive. And it's like some things just should be the way that they are and some things are sad and that's okay. And one of the sad things, by the way, is that no one sees the world the way you do ever, When you die, Helen, no one will ever have the same pattern of synaptic connections in your brain ever again. You're done. The beautiful thing that is Helen goes away forever. And on some level that is deeply sad for you because when you describe red to anyone, no one knows what the bloody hell you're talking about. And of course, red's a silly example in a way because we do all have some sort of concoction in our heads around what red is. But if you talked about empathy and what it felt like to feel the feelings of your mother, and no one knows what you're talking about because only you have, you, the world you see is seen by you alone, always and forever. And on some level that is lonely, but the beautiful other side of it, and I'm not, I'm not trying to turn sadness into a happiness thing. The beautiful sadness that comes from going, wow, I am only me. And the world I see is seen by me alone. means that every single other person is also both that unique and that mysterious. Our whole kind of approach to people where we generalize and impose our view on life, on them, and and they should feel such and such, or they do feel such and such because they're a certain race or gender or age or sexual orientation, all that goes away. Because the moment you realize that your unique view of the world is is filigreed and subtle and completely unique and not caused by how you were raised and not caused by your race or gender or age. The moment you realize that is the moment you realize that other people need to be taken so delicately as well. Other people need to be honored as completely, beautifully, massively unique humans that they are. And so all of our simplistic generalizations from which come out groups and definitions of deviant behavior and prejudice inevitably, those things get disarmed when we start realising how completely lonely we are. And I mean lonely in kind of, the best, <laughs> kind of the best sense.
1: That's fascinating. Yes, the idea of us as filigree, it is disarming, isn't it? This idea, and especially as someone who's worked in data for so many decades now, I wonder how you carry that knowledge and that approach to life and the world around with you in everyday life? I mean, you would want to almost sort of stop and chat to every person that you met, wouldn't you, to find out about them?
0: Well, that's why I started the book with introductions and I ended the book with introductions because introductions are funny. Like you start off and you go, hi, my name is Marcus Buckingham and it's nice to meet you. And what I mean, and I'm sort of an introvert, so on some level, I really don't mean that. (laughs) It's not nice to meet you.
1: It's terrible to meet you. Yeah, like, oh no.
0: i'm gonna to have to have a conversation with you but the the other part of it for me and it really is just a for me but the more seriously you take your own uniqueness the more this is why i wish we could do this all the way through people's teenage years to go listen there's only one you and i don't care what club or group you join all the way through your teenage years if you get a tattoo if you don't get a tattoo if you dye your hair what music i mean okay fine like join groups but but no matter what you're joining, there's only one you, and you're really weird. If you look inside yourself and really go, you know, I, I'm not an introvert or an extrovert. Sorry, Myers-Briggs. Sorry, Carl Jung. Uh, that's too simplistic, man. I'm not organized or disorganized. That's rubbish. Like, I'm I'm organized in the kitchen. I'm like a flipping, you know, uh, everything in its place, a place for everything in the kitchen. But my bedroom is a like a the towel flurry f- sort of flew in and threw up all over the room. You know. So stop generalizing about me. The more you do that with you, what's lovely about it is it doesn't turn you into a narcissist. I mean, it could turn you into a narcissist. (laughs) But the more you realize that you are uh, sort of unfathomably specific and complicated in the way that you react to the world and where the energy is for you in the world, therefore, so must other people be. Therefore, each person you bump into is like a, a landing on an undiscovered country. You're like, yes, this person is a different race than me. They might be a different religion than me. They might be dressed in a way that feels alien to me. But if I use those external cues as my definition of who that person is, I just about miss everything. And if you could if I could wave a magic wand, I would I would change the way that we talk about like if you look at the media even when you look at something like racism as I think it was Einstein said you can very rarely solve a problem on its own terms. One of the challenges of racism, of course, is that we are simplifying and generalizing about people of the same race. And yet, if you study, if you really, which is what I've done, you spend all your time just measuring um, psychometric elements of a particular person's personality or experience, you find far more variation within a quote-unquote race than between the races. So all these generalizations that we make about other races are well, we have to do it and we have to honour it because some races have been marginalised and disadvantaged because of their race. So, so we have to do that. But the solution, weirdly, is one that gets to the level of the biology and goes, wait a minute, that human right there, in terms of how they think, how they build relationships, how they, how they see new and effective configurations and things, what frustrates them or bores them, all of that, they're a category of flipping one. And if you want to know about them, ask questions, shut up and listen and put some of your initial assumptions aside because they're not helping you see that person. They're clouding that person. And I realize this sounds sort of idealistic, but actually when it comes to the world of work, it's not idealistic because when we build teams, we build teams out of lots of unique individuals with very unique contributions, not just through their gender and race, but through the way in which they what motivates them, how they think, how they make connections, how they're creative, how they're innovative. All those unique personality idiosyncrasies coming together is what creates a great team. Well, that's a very pragmatic need that the best companies and organizations have. If we don't have a language to talk about that, if we don't start teaching our children about that all the way through school, we end up sort of where we are now with these really broad generalizations about people that don't serve society for sure, but they don't actually serve productive teams in organizations
1: that's so interesting and and you mentioned school can you tell me a little about your school days and your growing up when when I was researching for today I read that you had a stammer until you were. was it about 12 and, and now public speaking is a place you're entirely comfortable can you tell me about that
0: well yes I mean I, I so you can still probably hear it talking now with you it's like my stamina never went away one of the funny things about people's problems in lives is that problems really never go away you actually just find a new way to move through life and build something up that's so big that ends up with your problem being kind of tiny my problem growing up was that i couldn't say my own name i couldn't say anything actually um they thought it was because i was competing with my older brother but i don't know i mean he wasn't he was just chucking around i who knows why your synapses fire in a disfluent way. But the bottom line is, I couldn't have this conversation with you, Helen. I couldn't even begin to have it. And, you know, I'm a boy in a school and there's stuff going on in my head and yet you can't actually get it out. And it's it's a devastating thing because you spend your entire day. It's your closest companion. Um, And I researched and researched and researched it to try to find out and and I learned an awful lot, even as a young kid, you learn a lot about if something really ails you, you get expert in it and how synapses fire and why some people can, can not stammer when they're really tired or some people can not stammer when they're singing. or All sorts of tricks that people, you've probably seen the film The King's Speech. Yeah. I got to about 12 years old and they, I, I walked past the notice board and I saw that four boys had been selected to read aloud in chapel and next week. And I thought it was a mistake because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't have a conversation, and it wasn't the night before. I went with my headmaster to the empty chapel, and big empty chapel. I went to the school where you had to go to chapel every day, and and um, the fifteen minutes of suffering it was a five-minute piece. It was fifteen minutes of disaster, and I just the next morning, all you're thinking about. It's funny when people talk about fear. They're like, you know, one of the ways to combat fear is people say, "Well, what's the worst that could happen?" and as a 12-year-old kid you're like uh, my life could end that's that's the worst that could happen it's
1: pretty bad yeah
0: <laughs> like no one will ever the entire school will know that i can't speak anyway so i i got up out of the pews of the choir and walked up and turned around at the lectern and looked out and i'd never been in that situation before helen because no one had ever asked me to do that before obviously and yet i looked out at everybody there's maybe 200 people in the room and the sight of the 200 people looking at me tripped different synapses in my brain and it actually felt warm around the top of my head but my synapses were tripping and firing in different ways and I could speak for the first time in my life looking at all those faces it was a different stimuli that I'd ever experienced before and I said the whole piece with one stammer on the word criticism I think which Freud might have a field day with, but, <laughs> but it was like a normal stammer. Like it was like a normal kid with, I was a normal kid. Right. I walked away from that and I didn't use the language at the time because I didn't have the language, but that's a red thread for me. Speaking in front of a large group of people is a red thread for me. I time flew by time flew by. I had no idea why, but it was like life was sort of trying to show me lots of different things. And one of the things that was showing me was, Hey, what about speaking in front of a large group of people? And boom, it's a red thread. And The only intelligent thing, I think, because I didn't work at it, I wasn't wasn't brave, I wasn't smart to figure out something, I didn't have a trick. But the only smart thing I think I did was I decided that if the only time I could speak fluently was in front of 200 people, then when I was talking to somebody in the schoolyard one-on-one, I would just pretend, I would just cognitively pretend I was talking to 200 people. And I would trick myself into having my synapses fire in a different way, which sounds, as I'm saying it now, it, it just sounds ridiculous. <laughs> and what are you I'm doing?
1: fascinated. It doesn't sound ridiculous, but it sounds, it's very interesting and I can't quite imagine how it could work. But perhaps you can't either. I
0: can't, I can't really either. I just know it went away, in a, the stammer went away in a week. By, by went away, I mean, it's still there. If I get tired or stressed, Helen, I, you can hear it in my voice. but It's So it's still there, like a snake, but it's a very quiet snake now. And for whatever reason, if I'm pretending I'm talking to 200 people, the synapses fire really differently for me. I mean, they must, because I couldn't say Marcus Buckingham. You could have drilled me and trained me before this happened and really been loving with my mother. I couldn't say my own name to my own mother. So it wasn't the stress or the pressure or the... It's like my synapses didn't work to speak unless I was speaking to 200 people. That makes no sense at all, except it was actually exactly what happened. You know, red threads, love, if you will, activities that are energetic, activities themselves, specific activities themselves that have energy for you that is positive is a therapy. It's a therapy therapy that we can use to solve up. We can use it to thrive. Yes. But we can use it to solve our problems. There's much more. I haven't even begun to peel the onion on this because there isn't really love therapy or if there is, it's probably mistaken for something else, but that's your next book. (laughs) Well, I don't know. That's certainly an interesting thing. We, as you said, we, we pathologize a lot of our lives. And so we become our pathologies as those studying our problems more makes them go away. But of course, change follows the focus of your attention. So the more attention you pay to problems, weirdly, the bigger they get. Sometimes you solve them, but often they just become all consuming. And so the fact that actual activities are differently energetic for every one of us and that some activities for some of us seem to be really positively um, laden with, with love, with all the signs of love. Like if somebody has social anxiety disorder, you could just dive into all the reasons why and really get into it. The mother caused it, the dad did, blah, blah, blah. you could, Or you could say to someone, wait a minute, when was the last time you had any sort of interaction with someone where time flew by? Anything, anytime. When was the last time? What were you talking about it? Who were they? What did you love about it? Just marinate that for a good long while. And then is there any part of that that you could use to think about the next interaction that you're gonna have. Is there any part of that which you love, which you love for no good reason other than that you are you? But is there any part of that that comes from within you? It's not me telling you what to do, because I don't know, but you, there, there was a moment a little while ago where you had one interaction that wasn't fraught and anxiety-inducing, it was actually uplifting for you. Let's just get into the flipping detail of that as vividly as we can, because that means we could maybe begin to migrate that into future interactions and the beautiful thing about that is that you've got it. you did it. it's in you. I didn't, it's not me telling you what to do. It's us just understanding what you've already done once that you might want to try to apply elsewhere. And I don't mean to be glib. You know SAD is social anxiety disorder is a real thing. Depression uh, is, a, is obviously a, a real thing. Schizophrenia. These are very complicated emotional states, mental states. So I don't mean to be glib, but to your point about sadness. We don't need to pathologize ourselves as much as we do. I think that's probably the safest thing to say. There's more stuff that we could look at that works.
1: I, am, I have many more things I want to ask you, but I'm interested, you mentioned going to chapel every day at school, and I similarly went to a school where chapel loomed large, and I find it interesting as a fellow introvert who is very comfortable public speaking, but if there was a small group would find it quite scary, that I was brought up very strictly that showing off was a sin. And there's still part of me that thinks, oh, I'm showing off. Should I be doing this? And because I find it enjoyable, that feels quite problematic as well, a little sometimes. And I wonder, having moved to America, whether this is more acceptable. You tell me your journey there.
0: Well... Yes, again, America versus Britain versus, uh, I know Australia has the tall poppy syndrome. But then again, there's some pretty crazy, you know, ego-driven people in the UK too. I mean, uh, Richard Branson, uh, Boris Johnson. Um, <laughs> yes. Obviously, here, John, Donald Trump. But ego is also a funny thing, isn't it? Because it, it takes a really big ego uh, for someone to write their autobiography at 33 And yet that's what Barack Obama did. He wrote Dreams for My Fathers at 33. Who does that? Somebody with an incredibly (laughs) strong sense of their own significance does that. That's a lot of work to do, to write an autobiography. At 33, I was just, I don't know about you, I was was an idiot, or maybe I still am, but I I wouldn't have written an autobiography at 33. But I do agree with you that we have a very strange relationship with our own loves and what lifts us up almost like we don't have a right to feel d- deep and abiding enjoyment in something, that almost that is self-involved. And what we haven't done, although frankly, and I don't know how up you are with your understanding of scripture, but th- to believe that Jesus say would say that that humility is making something beautiful and trying to make yourself pretend that you didn't do it, is a complete misunderstanding of humility. That, And I think I'm probably quoting C.S. Lewis in saying this, actually, from the Screwtape Letters. But the idea of humility is that you make a beautiful cathedral and are no happier or sadder than if somebody else did it. That's humility. That's not denying that you don't love the design and the creation of a cathedral. It can't be a very holy thing to take one of the most sacred things about you the fact that no one is white the same way that you are, no one gets exactly the same sort of enjoyment from exactly the same sort of activities than you do, it can't be holy to deny that, to go through your entire life pretending that that's not worthy. when of course in the end, the book, my book is called "Love and Work," because it's not love and love. It's love. The point of love is expression. that mm-hmm. love is the precursor to contribution. And in fact, if you look at the healthiest, happiest people that you know in your life, Helen, they wouldn't necessarily be the most successful, but they figured out some way to move through the different domains of their life, work and home and family and faith and activism and whatever, politics. They're moving through those domains. They know what are the activities that they love in those, and then they contribute those. And then the contribution of those adds detail to what they love in this kind of infinite loop.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And I think things change at different life stages as well, though, don't they? I mean, when you have children, suddenly, I mean, that's a form of work as well. And you love some aspects of it and perhaps not others. Is that there's a granularity to? I mean, yeah, nuance. Not terribly fashionable word these days, but um,
0: no, there is. Yeah, I mean, I feel I, it's. I I, I I did. Um, I was fortunate enough to do an entire show. Oprah devoted an entire show to women at work because they they did a show and everything else, but they hadn't done on work. So I did one with her with a whole um, audience filled with women which is odd being a man in that environment but I was there as a researcher really just asking the exact same question that you just asked what is it about being a mother that you love and what is it about being a worker that you love and how do those things come together and and we then we tape recorded transcribed everything as you do in this sort of primary qualitative research and the takeaway it sounds like such a flipping obvious takeaway but the takeaway, if you listen to them, happiest and most successful of these women that Oprah and her team had assembled was that they figured out which parts of being a mother they got a supercharge out of. Red threads. I didn't use that language at the time. Mm. Which parts of being a mother is a red thread? By the way, the variation of the answers to that question would blow your head off. But being a mother isn't like mother. It's like it's like there's so many different manifestations of motherness. And it's all in the weeds. It's I like getting down on two my you know on all fours and playing with my kid and this way, this way. There's some other mother going, I flip and hate that. I mean, I'll do it. But I hate that part of mother. I love this, and so many darn stories. And the only thing that was different from one mother to another, really, one working mother to another, was that the ones that seemed her to be thriving were the ones who well the phrase i used was catch and cradle um they they deliberately caught and cradled those i'm mixing my metaphors here but i'll go with red threads those red threads of motherdom (laughs)
1: okay so they grabbed hold they grabbed hold there we
0: go they grabbed hold Uh, at the time i was just juxtaposing with juggling because i I, can you juggle do you do you you know (laughs) how to juggle i'm terrible at juggling okay metaphorically not literally (laughs) Well, the secret to juggling, if anyone ever teaches you how to juggle, is not the catching, it's the throwing. And when you throw, the whole trick of juggling is how you throw things away from your hands. And the goal of juggling is to not touch anything for, uh, I mean, for as little time as you possibly can. So the, everything's about throwing, nothing's about catching, which if you think about it as a metaphor for life, is a nightmare because it means you're not touching anything. And so in a sense, the opposite of that for these women was which bits of my life invigorate me for no good reason other than that they do. And I will take those flipping seriously and then make sure as I go through my week, it's almost like they're waking up every day going, my day could just be something to get through. Yeah, it could just be a list of things that roll over from yesterday that I just got to get through, which it is as well. But it could also be a show. It could be putting on sort of a show for me going. What about this aspect? What about this moment? What about this situation? What about this activity? And if I can wake up thinking about that, the life is sort of trying to put on a show for me, showing me this thread, that thread, this thread, that thread. If I've figured out which bits, which threads are invigorating for me, then I'm going to hold on to those. And I'm going to actually intentionally attend to those. Not that I need 100% red threads as a mother, because that's absurd. But if I'm at five or zero, being a mother is just getting through it, then that's burnout. We know that leads to burnout. So what these people had figured out is like the activities themselves are varied. I am varied. I've got to figure out which bits of this for whatever reason lift me up. And I've got to take them seriously because no one else will. And I've got to, and this is the loneliness thing that you were talking about. I've got to shut everybody else out. When I'm getting advice from all these people on social media or whatever, on what it's like to be a mother and how I should do that, I'm going to shut them all out. Why? Because they're not me. And that was like, you know, I can't, my lived experience is I'm never going to be a mother. I'm a dad, but it's, that's different. It was, but as a researcher, you're like, oh, holy crap. That's so specific. <laughs> and they'd all figured it out independently. Not that it was like a panacea. I mean, they had their own challenges, but it was a very distinct way of deliberately going through, you know, the many demands of being a working mother.
1: Yeah, that's a top tip. Yeah, so it's, it's getting, it's it's kind of siphon out that feedback. And, and I must ask, I've seen you speak online about your own family's experiences over the past year, shutting out those criticism and that feedback. How, can you tell us a little bit about this for anyone who hasn't um, followed the story?
0: Well yes i mean it's it's a complicated and multifaceted story, but um, I have two kids. I was married for twenty years and got divorced for reasons that you go inside of a marriage. There's a million reasons why that but we basically had a different way of thinking about the world in the end and uh and I think what you're referring to is then sort of two years after that, I woke up one day to the fact that my son had been his mom, my ex had paid someone $50,000 to take a very public exam called an ACT, which gets you into college. He'd already got into college from taking a previously proctored exam at his school. But for whatever reason, my ex had decided that she wanted him to be in a different college, and so had paid someone $50,000 to take his test for him. She became part of what came known as the Varsity Blues uh, college cheating scandal, which is probably the uh, most notorious Effort by a whole bunch of parents to um, cheat the college a- uh, education exams. So, from that point on, it's been a real journey of forgiveness, of understanding, of trying to be there for my son in the right way, who will, as a son, always defend and support his mom, which is admirable. At the same time, I'm, you know, volcanically angry or less so now i mean time time helps but but the time was i couldn't get my head around how you would ever do that to your child no matter what the reasons were no matter how well intended you were you you don't you don't take a child's achievements away from them and then commit yourself to a life of lying to the child forever like i just can't get my head around that
1: of course and and volcanic is a is a great way of describing it i think I suppose there, that is another of the challenges of co-parenting, of which there are many, is that you are no longer in the same house necessarily. Not that every married couple are on the same page, but you are independent in your parenting in a way that perhaps there is nothing that can prepare you for. I wonder how how that continues to impact on your family or how you have managed to, to find some sort of peace.
0: Well, they're getting older. So one of the things that happens with... Do, do you have kids, Helen?
1: I do. I have three, but they're small. So it's all to come.
0: Yes. Well, as they get older, I I wrote about this towards the end of the book, too. It's um, no one will ever claim to be a perfect parent. I mean, you're just always making it up as you go along. um, But I did always love that poem, the Khalil Gibran poem, where he says that your children are not your children. You are the bow and they are the arrow. And your job is to be a stable i'm paraphrasing because he said it more beautifully than this but (laughs) your your job as a parent is to be stable and then you let the arrow fly forward into space and and what use is a an arrow with a bow still attached well when your kids are as young as yours are the bow is being pulled taut and the arrow is still being held close to the bow but but quite soon in their teenage years you you let the arrow fly and so i've come to see parenting as space making and what i saw in my ex and in all the other people that were involved in that situation was there was no space making it was fear of what the world was going to do to my kid and so you wrap the kid up in tinfoil and then when you look at the kid you don't see the kid you see your own fears reflected back at you and that's a very poor approach to parenting in the end, because it means you can't see your child. And so as you move forward with your three kids, as I'm moving forward with mine, I'm trying to be the most intelligent space maker I can and let the kids have the space to choose because when they choose, you can see the choice. And when you see the choice, you can see what informed it. And then you can see their own reaction to their own choice. And out of that comes efficacy and agency in the world. And that's the only way forward. If somebody else could, in this case, my, you know, their mother could intervene in ways that I can't stop. All I can do is keep saying to my two kids that they have their own choices to make in the course of their life. And the, the more choices they get to make, the more that they will understand how they make healthy choices in their own life. And I'm here to support and catch them whenever they make those choices and bump into a wall. But, but my job isn't to run alongside, attached to them as an arrow, Trying to direct where they're going to fall, where they're going to fly. And I don't know, I'll tell you how well it works in 50 years, all right? <laughs> yeah.
1: But we don't do feedback, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I wonder, I like to end by asking all of my guests, with all that you know now, what advice would you give your 21-year-old self about how to be sad well?
0: What a lovely question that is. Our emotions are our smartest, wisest friends. So If you're sad, the goal of life is to understand how you can move through life healthfully. You can make a contribution in such a way that it doesn't empty you out. In which case, sad and happy, sad and happy are clues to where you are going to make your greatest contribution in life. And you're going to bump into sadness all the time because you're going to make mistakes all the time. You're going to go across town, traffic light to traffic light. And you're not going to wait till they're all green and everything's happy and you're going to go. You're going to just go, Okay, I'm going to start out and I'll see what happens and I'll bump into that traffic light and I'll turn left. And so I think what I would say to my 20 year old self is when you're feeling sad, sit in it, A, because you deserve the time to make sense of your experiences and B, because it'll help you learn just that little bit more about you. And how you can make a contribution in life while still moving. So, sadness for me is a, is a clue for moving as well as a clue for self discovery. You know, for a person who's dedicated his entire life to focusing on figuring out what people's strengths are and using them, and who has sort of taken up against the idea that we should keep trying to fix everybody as though everyone's broken, I'm actually quite a fan of melancholy, that there are there's a range of emotion. And as you try to go through your entire 90-year life, figuring out that you know, you've got 5,000 Milky Ways in your brain, and as you try to demystify those 5,000 Milky Ways, uh, to some extent, love will be a clue, but also sadness will be a clue to who you are and what kind of mark you're going to make in the world. So I think I would say that to myself back then so that you don't beat yourself up, that look around you, see, no one else is sad. But in fact, hey, it doesn't really matter what anyone else is doing, when you compare, you disappear. So stop disappearing and just start thinking about what you feel and what it teaches you about you. Sorry if that sounds like a cliche.
1: No, it's good. It's, it's We're gonna put it all on a t-shirt. It's great, I love it. We're, we'll <laughs> all get them made up. Marcus Buckingham, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a total pleasure.
0: It's my pleasure, Helen.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today. Marcus's book Love and Work is out now and my book How to Be Sad, The Key to a Happier Life, is out in paperback wherever you get your books. If you have enjoyed this episode and you've listened to this part, please do rate, review, subscribe. It makes my mother delighted and it helps us to be able to keep going. Until
0: next time, thank you and stay well.